Black revolutionaries, distillery owners, Italian fashion retailers, and Motown Grammy winners all share their best stories never before told in any other media outlets on Detroit is Different. Visit DetroitIsDifferent.com or download the Detroit is Different app on Apple's App Store or Google's Play Store. Welcome back to the Detroit is Different podcast. And I have somebody that works in my world, the world of communications, marketing, messaging, content, you know what I'm saying. How you guys appreciate this. Mr. Dexter Sullivan, how you feeling today? My guy, I'm doing well, man. Thank you for having me today. Okay. All right. And we crossed paths at, uh, what what event was that? Like the Detroit Policy Conference. Policy Conference and you 23. Was like, how, how I get it? I'm like, man, what's your, what's your contact? Yeah, bro. We getting you on. We building with it. Let's Definitely. do it. Definitely. And I have been following you and watching your work um, and enjoying it thoroughly. So. Thank you. I was absolutely honored to come on and chop it up with you. Oh, yeah, yeah, because I was like, no, nah, let's not even do a short <laughs> interview. Let's just get you for the whole thing because same thing. I, I, I look yeah. at uh, the different, as they say, like you got to know what your competition is doing. You got to know the other people in this world because everything ain't always competition. Sometimes it's messaging. Sometimes it's resource right. passing. Sometimes it's just game. You know what I mean? That's right. Hodge Fleming's um, plugged me with something even that day there. It was it was fruitful. So man. with that. Love Hodge. Oh, man. That's been a mentor for 22 years. Wow. Yeah, me and Hodge, we go way back. Wow. I, I wouldn't even think that uh, you would, uh, as, as young, young as you look, I wouldn't even think you have a mentor <laughs> that old. That long, I should say. Yes, sir. Like, yes, you know sir. What I'm he was at, uh, yeah, you was at Oshpash Pigash. He was no. like, hey, <laughs> well, have you thought about how this logo looks? Uh, I'm just messing with you. I might eyes. be a little older than I look, dude, just I'm, a little bit. I'm just messing with you. So, Detroit story. Yes. What brought you and your people to Detroit? How did you end up in Detroit proper? Mm. I have to go back to uh, sharecropping Georgia mm. Mm. and Whereabouts? Alabama. My grandmother is from Rome, Georgia. Where is that? So Rome is about an hour north of Atlanta, right mm. off of 75. Mm. And you kind of have a little pocket of Hick Towns, Country Towns, Cartersville, Cedar Town, and Rome. That feels and like so, it's almost Tennessee, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you're down there now, my family, uh, my great-grandfather, Ivy Johnson, he had 13 kids. And uh, about half of them stayed and half of them came. Mm. And uh, he tried to come, but he couldn't He couldn't do the city life. He, he went mm. on back. But uh, that's where we get like, our beginnings. He was like, where the pecans at? Man, <laughs> listen, here. All, all year he won't pecans. Yeah. Like, pecans, pecans. <laughs> and, uh, pecans. Man, man. So, man, we spent a lot of time in Georgia growing up mm -hmm. and on 75, you know, back and forth every year. But, you know, my grandmother, her story. She uh, moved here in the 40s, waiting tables and, uh, you know, doing her thing. They lived at East 555 Adams, hmm. where Comerica Park is now. Wow. But back when Hastings Street was still booming, uh, they lived there. And uh, that was one of the boarding houses where blacks could stay when they came here. So hmm. they began there and slowly worked their way up, you know, and uh, ended up settling raising family so my granddad he is the eldest of 23 hmm. and uh they come from tuscumbia alabama tuscumbia <laughs> where is that at in the sticks in the sticks it's actually okay. tuscumbia has grown a little bit okay but it's in that muscle Shoals, sheffield florence pocket okay so uh it's grown a lot but yeah man we still a lot of us there a lot of us here so we we country city folks so and you're from both states where I think most Detroiters come from. Like definitely, as, as I have a lot of discussions about this, um, and I'm always shocked when I meet uh, somebody from like Arkansas, or Texas. Right. But it's so much rich history uh, between Georgia and Alabama because yeah. the the railroad lines ran right to Detroit, and a lot of Alabamans, a lot of people from Georgia. That's why you see a lot of that crimson right. tide around Detroit That's for right. no apparent reason. You may see a couple people wearing that uh, that Auburn stuff. A few, <laughs> just not, a couple of many, them. A couple of them. A couple of them. <laughs> but uh, so that's unique that yeah. they're two black bottoms. So it was like a a rich connection of even the um, I would say like a, a a friends and probably friends of the family that your grandparents had even 
coming here yes. with those connections, I'm guessing. Yes, and family was was paramount. You know, some of them landed in Akron, some of them landed in Cleveland, but mm. they moved to industry towns, mm-hmm. you know, following that $5 day and a lot of the opportunities that were in the North. Okay. Uh, my grandmother, she was in the food industry, later moved into nursing, and mm. um, at that time they wouldn't allow her to be a nurse. Mm. She attended Lewis Business College, oh. um, and then she served as a nurse's aide for many years. Mm-hmm. And then my grandfather... His mother passed away when he was seven years old, and he lived kind of from house to house, uh, moving around with family until he found his way here, attended Mumford High School in the 40s, and uh, then he went on to do Navy. So he was a Navy man, Hmm. and um, when he came back, that's when he and my grandmother met. They stayed in a neighborhood not far from here, uh, right off of Linwood in Northwestern, Okay, and uh, moved around, lived on Taylor and Dexter for a little bit until they moved uh, more to the Dearborn border. So they're Wyoming and Tyreman in that neighborhood now. Okay. But, uh, yeah. So they went from basically my, like my central neighborhood to the McKenzie neighborhood. That's right. Is that the home you remember them being as a child? Was like that their home? Man, they've lived there for 60, 60 years this year. Wow. Wow. Yeah. They've been married 63 Mm-hmm. And uh, been in that home the majority of their married life. Mm. Okay. So uh, so going over there, I'm sure, like the go-kart track. and Oh, yeah. It's a lot of, some, a lot of church over there. Too. A lot I mean, of church. A lot of church everywhere, but that neighborhood has a lot of churches. You oh, know yeah. What I'm saying? They, they, uh, they are charter members of Central CME Church. Okay. The one that's standing, they, they built that church. So, mm. yeah, they're, they're big time in the okay, neighborhood. Okay, so they, they for sure, for sure. You said <laughs> chartering member of a church. It's like, yo, I was here, I was here before, when it was an idea. Well, they were there when it was more of a storefront and then took it. We we're part of that group that took it to the next level. But okay. they're right next to Unity Baptist, mm-hmm. which is, you know, Reverend Stott's mm-hmm. very historic black church in Detroit. Um, but that whole Tyreman corridor, as it comes down to the boulevard, you know, a lot of community action happened in that neighborhood. OK. Uh, and, and with that uh and I was going to just go like parents now. So, so your parents, what neighborhood? We, we obviously know one of those neighborhoods. Yeah. Uh, wh- where we, where were you guys? Where, did, where did they grow? How, how, what impacts? What schools and things like that? Yeah. So my mom, uh, she started over here. So at the Taylor House, that okay. was where she started, and then they moved uh, to the McKenzie address. She ended up actually going to Cass. Okay. Uh, so she was a Cass girl, and then my dad. He grew up on Leslie, uh, Mm. so also right in the neighborhood. A lot of our family, they still own a number of them houses over there. And uh, Pops, he went to Mumford. So, Mm. yeah, mixed it up. He ended up moving uh, more to the Schoolcraft Greenfield area. Okay. So that was Grandma. That was kind of where my Pops grew up. Okay. Um, And and with this, um, I guess with that background uh, of... Like a lot of West Side, I can see a whole lot of West Side, but don't don't we we still East? Okay, yeah, yeah. My granddad, when he was a younger man, before they moved, you know, kind of to the big leagues, when he moved over to being able to go to Mumford, they stayed off of Canton and Canfield. Okay, and um, my aunt Annie, they still had a house over there, uh, and it's been in the house for oh my gosh, probably eighty years or so. Okay, so, so I'm guessing that they never. Held any family gathering? I'm just messing. <laughs> 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 it's it's still like one of those sad things with Detroit. Like if, if you the one person that moves to the other side of town, it's like oh man, ain't nobody trying to drive over there. Oh, hey man, in Detroit, birthday, you like, still oh. you still in city limits. <laughs> but you know our families was so big. Everywhere you go, you gonna see a cousin, even mm. still. So you know we always mixing it up, okay. east side, west side, going okay. to visit. You do. We would have like a parade of holidays. <clears throat> so okay. for Christmas, you know, we gonna host at our crib. Okay. Then that next day we go into my grandmother's house. Then we go into mother grandparents' house. So you know, it just is what it is. Okay. So that's what's up. So yeah. it would mix up. It wasn't like one because oh, nah. you know sometimes it, <laughs> it in the family structure usually like it's usually like a house that's like yeah we gonna host that. It's like right. everybody's like centered. You know, right. sometimes like the grandma house or something. But and then you know who got around. you know who can do what food. So <laughs> Memorial Day, 
Memorial Day, we want the ribs for real. We gonna be off a of Metatar. You know. And then grandma gonna throw down Thanksgiving, we're gonna be right over there off Kentucky. So okay. it just, you know, okay. you just move where the where the food is. I got you. Hey, that that even makes more sense. So it's like, hey, we're not taking any chances on no the chance. barbecue oh, no. being messed up. Nah. Nah. I'm trying this this the this, this no chance person on the grill. No chances. And Memorial Day barbecue is different than Labor Day barbecue. <laughs> Because my pops, pop, my granddaddy, he going to be off for Labor Day. And those ribs will be marinating for days. So that's a whole nother situation. Okay. I, I already, I like the DVA. It's like uh, auntie's new boyfriend. It's like, hey, man, if you don't put that spatula down, my brother. Get out of here. To put the spatula down. We don't even need no sauce, bro. Get out of here. <laughs> I like it. So within that, you, what, um, what neighborhood did you grow up in? Man, so growing up in Detroit, I grew up at Seven and Woodward. Mm. Um, my parents, so I got to kind of track back. They were first generation college in mm-hmm. our family. Okay. And so uh, by the time I came around, they were already making moves. Uh, my dad, he didn't do really well in high school, but his test scores were like off the charts. Okay. So he had scholarships to go to different universities around town, not off of his academic progress. I mean, he was like on probation, mm. but because his test scores were so high, wow, folks wanted him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he ended up going to Eastern, where he met my mom. Uh, my mom majored in nursing, pops majored in business and sales and marketing, mm. and uh, he went on to have a really successful career. Was one of the highest performing uh, individuals, and just happened to be black uh, in sales for Xerox. Mm. Crushed the game, did his thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, so by the time they ca- I came around, they had come into a little bit of change. You know, okay. they could do what they wanted to do. But uh, they ended up buying a crib in Palmer Woods. Okay. And uh, so we grew up, you know, on the uh, upper side of Detroit, like in okay. the woods. In the okay. woods. Because yeah. I was going to say, like, Seven and Woodward, it, it, if it ever was a tale of two cities, that's definitely... Bruh. Uh, uh, like one side of Woodward is like a whole nother reality Man. than the other side of Woodward. And but they bleed. right there. They bleed. Yes. So like my boy Carl, we always clown. He lives in Kalamazoo now. But we always clown and say it was the, the cats on the east side of Woodward that taught us how to hoop mm-hmm. because they would come over and we'd play basketball with okay. them. You know, we, we ain't know what we was doing until we started yeah. hooping with them. It was like, okay. But uh, yeah, man, it was a beautiful mm-hmm. childhood, a beautiful growing up. Um, you know, at that time in the 90s, the majority of everything in Detroit was black. Definitely. So my postman is black. Uh, the corner store leader and owner is black. You know, all the shops on Avenue of Fashion, it was just living noise back then. Mm-hmm. It's all black. You know, I'm going to the pet shop, it's black on. I'm going to the clothier, it's black on. The grocery store, ain't nothing but black clerks in there. Um, you know, the bank, First Independence, everything. My first bank account and a black bank. Mm. So that was just an orientation and a disposition of life. You know, when we come into the downtown, Pops was interacting with city council and all that. We go up uh, to the Coleman Young building. Everybody you meet looks like you. Hmm. So it forms a different kind of identity as a child when black excellence is normal. Expound on that. What What do you think? Um, how did you know that that when did you recognize that that experience was mm. different for you than others? And two, what impact do you think that that has on you today? Man, so formative. That's a brilliant question. I don't think I was cognizant of black power in my life, in my lived experience, until elementary school. So I attended Paul Robeson Academy. Hmm. Ray Johnson was my principal. Okay. And the majority of my educators were African-American males. Were you there when Mayor Kilpatrick was there? No. I wasn't there when Kilpatrick was there. I don't think Okay. And I may have just been too young. I may, I may mm. not have had him mm-hmm. as an educator, but I had Ralph Bland. Mm. Um, you know, I had okay. Dr. Hubert Massey. Wow. You know, we're still very close. We were just doing an event a couple of weeks ago in Detroit. Yeah. Um, and wait, we can't skip master artists. The man. Master artists. 50 grand. Master artists, continue. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, you know, so many amazing, amazing educators. Bessie Burden, uh, Miss Brooks. Um, you know, I could name them, just keep going on. But pr- uh, Principal Ray Johnson, uh, he's a board member for uh, the Black Legacy Investment Co- Coalition today. You know, they drove into us that identity 
of what a black man was going to be mm-hmm. and a black woman uh, for our female counterparts. But it was just a brilliant experience. You know, we would come together in our empowerment sessions, learning uh, all of the principles of Kwanzaa, being able to quote them verbatim, you mm-hmm. know, uh, on time, on task, on a mission. You know, that was our saying that we had to rehearse. And I think that coming out of that experience and going into other formative experiences that marked me and shaped me in such a way I was not ever disconnected from the excellence of blackness Hmm. and believing that to be true. Hmm. Uh, Even when I was in primarily white environments, other environments that may have wanted to conform me, it was too late. That's deep. That's deep. So in what ways did you like notice some people responding to mm. that confidence, that that connection, because uh, similar, I'm Aisha Shule, like Paul Robeson is, yes, uh, as people know, shout out my, my interview with Kwame Kenyatta, uh, the the making of Paul Robeson uh, was in, in Marcus Garvey, uh, Malcolm X, like these were public institutions infused yes. with the basis of an African-centered education. Yes. And I do believe African-centered education does have an impact, especially on a young child, where it's like a different bounce that usually you get. I sometimes see the difference, but when did you start noticing even the difference in some of the other, you know, some other black students or or colleagues or people you know, where it's like, mm, they're not, they probably didn't connect with this the same. Right. Definitely, definitely in um, my junior high, high school experience, um, you know, my parents, they wanted us exposed to various cultures so that we would know how to get along in life. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they would pay for us to go to, you know, some of the summer prep programs. I remember one year uh, we went to Cranbrook. Okay. And if anybody's from Detroit, you know, Cranbrook is way up Woodward and it's a whole different universe than Mm -hmm. what usually we experience. And I remember uh, as a kid, I was probably still six or seven in the summer camp. uh, We were, you know, tussling, wrestling as kids do. And I was identified as being more rough than the other kids. Mm -hmm. And I was restrained from the group and put behind a cage wall. Wow. And my mother had to come and pick me up, and it was a very strange experience, but I remember having a problem with it and addressing it, and I never went back to that camp again. At a young age, saying that. Yeah. Hmm. And, you know, they were saying, you know, the way I was acting was different. And later, reading Jawanza Kanjufu's book, The Conspiracy Uh. of... Uh, educating and the miseducation of black Black boys, boys. Mm -hmm. I was able to more so identify what I was experiencing was the misidentification of power in a black man as Mm -hmm. he is forming. And so uh, I think it was the affirmation of my parents, the reaffirmation of my community that I never lost a resonance to who we are, who we are to be, and even why sometimes who we are is a threat to other. And so I would say that would be one of the early experiences. And then even moving into primarily black environments that were not Afrocentric, they didn't have a pan-African orientation Mm -hmm. uh, where faith was still paramount. And my faith is extremely important to me. I'm a a Christian. Um, But at the same time, I don't abdicate my blackness because I was black before I was Christian. Mm, That's deep. I like like how you put that. And now I'm, I'm completely like, shift into something that I think you can speak to more than most. Um, one of the big mm. events that I'm sure you got one of your mentees here now uh, that I just, Man. you know what I'm saying, gave him play and everything, but something he missed out on that we would love, mm. but you grew up in the footprint of it. That was the Michigan State Fair. Man. What did what was that like being so close? Because we used to just Man. you know catch the bus, go there. I mean, we guys was like trying to get girls' numbers, oh. and just play. For, like <laughs> it was the it was like a a, a, a social setting yeah. where I felt like it was welcoming Safe. to young people. Yeah, um, you know, it would be concerts and stuff. Like, you know, what was it like being there? Because we wanted to go every day. <laughs> 
<laughs> we couldn't go every day. We had to be strategic on right. the day we pick. And it's like, is she going to be there? Is her uh, girl going to be there? Yeah. Like, who, who we, we on the set? Like who on the set? You, you had the luxury of possibly being able to walk every day. <laughs> what was that like being in that neighborhood with that being there? It's something that I wish would come back oh, to that footprint. But speak on that. That's a big question, too. So communities are so essential to how we experience life. Mm -hmm. Detroit, I feel like we're getting back to that, mm -hmm. where people are like, I'm from Detroit, but I'm from Russell Woods, or mm -hmm. I'm from LaSalle, I'm from Dexter Linwood, you know? Yeah. I'm from Grandma, I'm from Rosedale. So State Fair, you know, it just is a dope experience. If you ain't never had an elephant ear from State <laughs> Fair, you ain't never had one. Man, them things be so good. You know, I think being around it, it was normalized. It wasn't like, oh, yeah, we can't wait. We would enjoy it, but it was familiar. You know, you mm -hmm. go to sleep and you can hear the concerts. So mm. it's kind of like living at River Place today and wow. here in Shane Park. Mm. You know, I lived there last. Mm. Um, it becomes normal. Okay. You know, it can almost become irritating if you got your own routine that is disturbing. But mm. it was still dope and I think when Amazon came in and they started making changes, I I did grieve the past. It's like, oh, man, they don't even realize what we're changing, you know. Mm. And not that change is bad, but, you know, it's healthy to grieve memories and things that mm. you enjoyed. But it was an, a, a magical experience. Absolutely. Because I, I just, you know, it was a, a footprint that, like, and even the concert series, like, you know, yeah. Being able to connect to that, yeah. and it was like graspable. It wasn't. It didn't seem very expensive because we were right. going with our, uh, you know, minimum wage money. You know what I'm saying? Our Burger King money, right. or whatever. So subtle was, flex, subtle flex. Yeah, at the, at the fair for sure. So it was. It was definitely one of those things. So I, I just only assumed that, like being a couple yeah. blocks away, you all had the option to like, oh yeah, genuine on stage now. So let's <laughs> go on and walk over there. <laughs> Oh yeah, you you dating us now? You putting us in the genuine eras for real? Mm. I'm just saying, like, well, that's definitely like dating. But I'm thinking, I'm that's a performer that I remember. No, absolutely was talking about absolutely. Uh, you know, but so many others like just in that stage and in that interaction. And do you think that it, cultural events? What's your take on mm. being in the footprint around like where cultural events take place and Man. what impact that has on a community? You know, not to take it too far, but I feel like cultural events are happening all the time, even when it's not on a flyer. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for us, it was the Dream Cruise right on Woodward. Mm -hmm. My dad loved cars. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we would always be driving the cruise. The first, I met Jay Leno as a kid. He was right there in between seven and eight by the mm -hmm. car wash, you know, at one of those old car museums across from Woodlawn huh. uh, back in the day. Wow. And, um, you know, just seeing all the amazing vehicles and history on the first paved road in the United States, Woodward mm -hmm. Avenue. You know, so to me, even those small things, those are huge markers. Uh, Saturday was a huge day in our household. You know, it was the day we was going to get up and clean the house. Okay. And we was going to go down to the Eastern Market and get all the food for the week. Mm. And, um, you know, that was before what it is today. And, you know, kindly, I will say what it is today. But I remember it being a primarily black held experience. Mm. And, you know, I can remember Kim. Everybody knows Kim now. But back in those days, he was just playing at the Easter Market. Mm. I think that might have been when he was still homeless, you know, wow. um, and talent like that being around you. It's not an event. But it's an event. That's deep. That's deep. And then your family was, you know, and, and there are a lot of families that, you know, consistently. But being, I guess, also being so far, most of those are like my people that grew up, you know, mm. uh, Jefferson Chalmers, like yeah. more closer that side. That's what my granddad, my, my on my dad's side, he okay. stayed right in Jefferson Chalmers. So. Okay. Because, yeah, cause I'm so used to hearing these stories of like going to Rockies for spices and stuff. Like oh, yeah. Whereas I. Oh, Rockies was crazy, bro. Yes. The yes. candy was exquisite. Yes. I don't know what they're doing in there now. I go it's, in there and I'll be like, bro. It's it's not the same experience, but I still remember, like, the people I know that mm. would go, and your family was one of those families that would often go there before it, you know, had the, the yeah. a lot of strategic investment from um, 
DDP and yes. other stakeholders to yes. create Eastern Market as like a, a massive CDC. Because yes. before it was that, it was like, you know, our, it seemed like grandmas <laughs> and butchers and certain restaurant people would you get your here. meat the right the right cuts yeah. now. Yes. And it's dope now. Oh, definitely. You it's know, it's just a dope a experience. It's, it's more very of a, different. Um, it just felt like before it was more of like of a, 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 a who's here, whereas now it's welcoming other other things, which yeah. just expands, as you say, like yeah. what becomes the cultural place. Uh, yeah. So also to that story, after um, after high school, where are you at? Man, uh, so after high school, I moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Wow. I, so uh, you go to another with rich black history tradition city. What led you there? Man, so I attended Oral Roberts University. Hmm. Long story as to how I got there. Yeah, I was going to say how. Um, long story short, my pastor at the time, he was on the board and, um, you know, amazing uh, leader in the community here. And so we had a lot of interaction with the university because they would come to the church. Mm -hmm. So I was aware of them. Uh, by the time I was deciding where I was going to go, I thought I was going to attend Michigan State mm -hmm. and actually enrolled, got my dorm, all of that. So and, you were, uh, like, really there. I was there. Yeah, mm -hmm. I was going to start early, do the summer program, all of that. And I really felt like I needed to take a chance. And I had, you know, scholarship money and stuff lined up. I didn't have nothing in Tulsa. Hmm. And um, a few of my friends were going, and I just had this impression that I should check it out. And I'm like, man, this could totally bomb, but I'm going to give it a semester. I'm going to just go for a semester, check it out. Got there. It was the craziest time in my life. Um, this is 2007. If anybody remembers Detroit in 2007, it was a lot of chaos in the city. Uh, my dad, his business was very integrated in Detroit. Uh, we ended up losing everything. Mm. Um, and so we went from being very comfortable, you know, living high class to uh, being fairly broke. And mm. so... Uh, it was a risky decision moving out of state. Um, I was working a few jobs and going to school, just head down, getting it done. But it ended up being the single most formative and shaping experience of my manhood. And I say that because I had to figure it out. Mm. And I think today we don't challenge a lot of our young men to figure it out. Mm. Uh, we coddle and hold and give opportunity but sometimes the opportunity is blocking the actual opportunity of your own discovery and formation and so you know that's where I, I say I went from uh, brains to grit hmm. and I had to just make it happen and um, you know God was really good to me there man I had some incredible opportunities my last two years, I served as a student body president, mm. and um, that took me all over the world, able to mix and mingle and learn and grow in just tremendous ways. Um, and then that kind of also helped to refine and define what was next. But the black ethos there in Tulsa, it actually took me a while to find it, mm. because if you've ever been to Tulsa, everything has developed away from the black Wall Street and what was of us in the in the teens and the 20s. Mm -hmm. So literally, uh, segregation was so severe that when they brought the freeways, like they did all over the country, they drove freeways like they did in Black Bottom through the black business districts. Mm -hmm. There, not only did it drive through the district, it cut the district off from all development, and no freeways went into that community. So I had lived there for several months and I'm still like, where are my people? Like where they live <laughs> in mass, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, I met Dr. Anthony Marshall, educator at Booker T. Washington High School there. And man, he just became my mentor, opened up my eyes to what that was. And, you know, during my nine years living there, became very integrated in uh, that community uh, from a social and religious perspective, we started the Man to Man Project, which still functions today, mentored hundreds of young men in at-risk and failing institutions, um, you know, did 
some civic advocacy work with uh, the mayoral office at the time and getting very much integrated in the storyline of the former uh, Black Wall Street and to see what's happening in Tulsa today is so exciting because I remember being a part of it when it wasn't hot, when it wasn't popular. And so now the awareness and the consciousness about how excellent we were in that era and it being a part of table conversation across the country is just phenomenal. So so with that, you also pointed on something else. Um, <clears throat> your father um, mm. being having a business that was intricately involved in the city's business. Yes. Uh, and, and we speak about what I'm going to stand on for for forever. Um, the that was a, a strategic attack on black leadership and black power. The bankruptcy, quote unquote, of Detroit, um, like my godmother, I don't believe that that should have ever happened. Honorable Joanne Watson. Yes. Um, love her. Love the, her. Uh, the for many a reasons, um, let alone for the the revenue sharing and profit sharing that the state of Michigan to this day still owes the city of Detroit. Uh, if you go back through the archives of Detroit is different. You'll get the interview where I'm talking to mm. Anthony Adams about how that happened but basically let's put it like this when Cobo Hall was built when it was originally Cobo Hall it was uh it was built as a regional institution the regional institution uh as time went on as the asset uh Detroit had to front a lot more money for that uh and upon Coleman Young was always like you're gonna pay your fair share of even being a person that works in the city but lives outside the city. Um, Dennis Archer's right. tenure of mayor kind of said, all right, we're going to eliminate this overtaxation of Detroit, of workers in Detroit that live in the sub suburban Detroit. Um, and it was agreed to that the state of Michigan would pay, pay revenue sharing for that. State of Michigan has never honored that. Wow. So hence that money has grown exponentially. Um, this has been a call to action for wow. every mayor since Dennis Archer included to honor. And no mayor has ever honored that. I believe Mayor Duggan at least spoke to that and said that the state really won't honor this, which hence the 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 trepidatious relationship of the state saying we're going to impose this bankruptcy. Uh, when How? it's like the state, you owe us money. So that's my stance on this being an attack on black leadership and black power uh, and led to a lot of things that we see happening in Detroit today. So I do want to say that, but you're actually one of the first people to speak to. It had a direct impact on like business and contracting and other things that impact. So what was your dad doing with the city? How did he move forward with that? Because, you know, as a business owner, I'm always interested in how do we pivot? How do we thrive? How do we survive when what we thought would come through does not? Man, <laughs> so much in that, you know, at that time, there was so much moving in Detroit, mm -hmm. and I think that opportunity is visible to the one who has the gift of perception at the time. I like that. And my dad was blessed, he and his partners, to perceive an opportunity and definitely uh, capitalize on it. They were in the energy sector. And so they brokered major deals in the city for various clients. Um, I believe Detroit Public Schools was a client at one point. And essentially, the upheaval and the disruption of power, it, what it did, it thwarted opportunities for hundreds, if not thousands, of businesses in the city who were indirectly affected. Definitely. And so... Um, I know that personally there were some changes and things that occurred that caused uh, for tensions to erupt to the point where, you know, that business went through various transitions. And I think that there are so many people in Detroit, specifically from that area, who were disrupted and not necessarily given uh, the recovery that we're seeing now that what you can't repair through reparation is time. Mm -hmm. 
there's no way to fully reparate what has happened in the space of time. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, time is a gift in and of itself. I think you look back and with the right perspective, you can have very few, if any, regrets. And so it was learning. It was a joy of the experience when it was what it was. Um, but I think that when you look at the issue that you just presented, when we look at unfair taxation and when we look at bankruptcy, not just on a municipal and state level, city level, but when we look at it as human beings and what is the cost attributed to the human beings, their business, their livelihood. Um, if we go back as far as white flight and look at the economic upheaval that was caused by business leaving the city, consumers leaving the city, opportunities leaving for decades, you know, all of that has a massive impact on the lived experience of those that are left. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's so nuanced that it can be overwhelming to even think about. Definitely. But, you know, institutes like Detroit Future City and um, others in Detroit that are spending time yeah. digging into the narrative and unfolding the data yeah, and helping us. Detroit, a lot of Bridge Detroit. Uh, love Shout them. out Riverwise, uh, my partners. Um, you know, and, and a lot of people getting that and that richness. Uh, and, yes. and I would just say, so your dad, did he stick to that business? Did, did he and his partner stay, stay grounded? What type of, um, you know, when moments like that happen, you know, I, I think it even redefines a, one's relationship with family. As I, yeah. as I often tell people, like the stakeholders in your business start with the people that are, are closest to you. Uh, not necessarily, you know, obviously investors and customers matter. But if 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 wife, child, you know, husband, uh, you, you know, grandparent, auntie, uh, you know, uncle, nephew, niece, if they're not buying in right. and don't understand it, then it only makes all of the other work so much more exponentially tougher. That's so perceptive of you and a brilliant response. So, um the business in its changes, Pops actually transitioned into doing something different, mm. uh, moved into city planning and, mm. you know, pivoted in his career to really thrive and kill it. And uh, he actually relocated to Atlanta. I'm guessing some of this may be happening around that oh. time. Like, you know, the conversations, I'm guessing you, you never thought you would have, you start to have. Right. And those conversations are the things that help you start to locate that sixth sense Mm. where you saw, but now you see. Mm. You saw one-dimensionally, this is pulling you into other dimensions of sight simply because of a new experience. Wow. Trauma is nothing to open the eyes of a person like trauma. Mm. It will open your eyes never to be closed again Mm. because you can't unsee what you've seen. And so it becomes a gift if channeled in the right direction. It can become a curse if not. And I think that for me, I can't speak to anybody else, but for me, my faith is the thing that kept me above um, discouragement, giving up, um, because all of those things are experienced, the discouragement, the loss, the pain having to rebuild, et cetera, you know, I've, after that, you know, been on assistance, been on food stamps, you know, uh, been homeless, been through all of that, um, in different phases of my journey. And it is those experiences that help you to see what it takes to recover, to rebuild, uh, to move forward, to evolve, but then also to see someone else that's experiencing that as well. Mm. Because you hopefully never forget and never become so far removed from the trauma and the pain that you can't support somebody else that is navigating and transitioning uh, just like you had to. So you spoke to faith, too, and and, and tapping into that at a younger age, at, at an age where, you know what I'm saying, like, 
you know, 18, yeah. 19, 20, 21. That's, you know, yeah. young, young, virile man. That's like really probably at the time where just life's coming at you. Yeah. And the last thing usually is tapping into faith, because even if you're trying to tap into faith, like just getting distracted at that age is could be as simple as, oh, you know. Yeah. As simple as you thinking, hey, what my friend doing? Let me text him. Hey, what y'all got up? You know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> That's distractions right. are abundant then. Um how did you you know, and this is a different faith than like, you know, going to church because grandma's like, come on, let's go to church. This yeah. is like a different connection to do yeah. this voluntarily. Yeah. Miles away from everyone else. Tap into this as a source to provide opportunity and a source and an anchor to to be a guide at this time when you're looking for something. Yes. How did you even go about that path, especially being a younger man at the time? True. So I think, Kari, it's a mix. So I think there's predisposition mm -hmm. that certain individuals have. I think it is environment. Mm -hmm. I think it is consistency. So my mother kept us in church. We was with her. Uh, a lot of our childhood. So just by sheer nature of environment, we were around. We were around it. Mm -hmm. But then when I speak to the predisposition, if I'm honest, I liked it. Is mm -hmm. okay. <laughs> a lot of kids don't like church. Yeah. You know, they don't like that. Uh, but there was something in me that identified with it. And even when I didn't necessarily want to be there, there were things I was picking up in my subconscious that I had an identification with that I could not deny. And so those things in times of crisis, you know, where I may have had the opportunity to be drawn into something more distracting or more damaging. You know, I got boys right now that are six feet under the ground that we grew up in the same environments, but our dispositions were a little different. Mm -hmm. And so um, I don't look at that and say, well, you know, everybody should just make better choices and everybody should just do what they should do. Everybody doesn't have the same disposition. Mm -hmm. Everybody is not necessarily wired in the same way. And some things make people tick differently. Um, and so there was just something about it, man, where it was home for me. Mm -hmm. It was a sense of normal for me. And in the chaos of formative experience as a young adult, um, as a young person, adolescent, I think for me, prayer, scripture, church, it became a foundation where I know this is not changing. And so I could lean on that uh, internally when I couldn't lean on anything else. That's deep. And, and, and I definitely have to throw in from the, the, the pro-black angle because that's yes. the other thing that I think you have a big disconnect. I mean, you walk in most of these churches and it's like, you know, it's, it's past the dinky. Like, basically, black men are either between the ages of like four and 14 and I don't know. They miss they're not us. in a leadership position. Right. 60 and 80. It's you a know fact. What I'm so because I think with this, I, I, I often and I'm asked this. Uh, shout out Frida. Love Frida Sampson. Um, mm. Um, and everything she does with the Institute honoring, Man. Um, Fred, uh, Honor and Reverend Sampson. Man, so, legend, um, legend. So, and we, we have these talks. So, like, it's, it's a couple big questions in Christianity in the black community. First off, Christianity definitely has been used to oppress people, you know. Without question. Uh, that's one. Two, I think it's also the disposition, back to the sorry, I like that, of, like, it's still this man telling me how to do all this stuff because usually it is a man that's right. in that pew and pul right. pew pulpit as a quote-unquote leader. Um, and then the other thing is like, you know, why can't I just figure it out on my own? These are like questions that I think right. that are like just resonate with men, black men especially, like uh, high. Hence, it's been such a disconnect. At one point in time, the church, as I often argue, with people so like people will say oh you hypocritical but i was like no nah, i'm just just layered i'm, I'm a human being the yeah. church still was an institution that for years like it, it would it, it was one of the few like anchors in the community for for social capital absolutely uh for connection um 
and, and how people gather. Things yes. have changed. The way we gather, the way we connect, and where things go. Uh, beingness with that African-centered education. And I'm sure all of the questions I just asked are things that have been in your mind, too. And you've yeah. probably had these debates before, too. What's that call to action? And do you think that a call to action gathering uh, more black men in that space where faith can be an anchor and, and even just know how to utilize it um, can become an asset in our community? Man, that's such a, a bold question, one that needs so much answers. I think there's two things that have happened to us in the Christian faith, mm. maybe three. Um, this neighborhood, I was just telling Jay on the way over here, uh, my grandmother's church, Metropolitan Baptist Church, mm. that's okay. where my dad grew up. You know, that's where we started at. Okay. Um King Solomon Baptist Church. Oh, yeah. Not too far where Dr. King would hold his progressive missionary Baptist Church conferences. Mm -hmm. You got Max gave Nation yeah, of Islam. Yeah, yeah. Temple number one right yep. here. You know, this neighborhood is steeped in spiritual tradition. Mm -hmm. The demasculinization of Christianity, hmm. I think, has been one of the most intrinsic weapons to destroy black males experience of Christian faith. That's interesting. I expound on that a little bit. I think that when you don't have a consistent example of masculinity in any environment, the sheer vacuum that is created by the lack of presence begins to form an identity with spirituality, with whatever is present. And so for generations. I mean, this goes back beyond my grandparents. I mean, both of my great grandfathers were not churchmen. That was not what they did. But they wanted their kids to go and they let their wives go. But they were not present. I think generationally, Christianity has been a more feminine experience where males are elevated in pulpits, Definitely. but not necessarily in community, hmm. not necessarily in the fellowship of saints It's the majority women. And so I think that is why the nation of Islam is more attractive. I think that is why Hebrew Israelites are more attractive mm. is because you see the male expression in a powerful form. That's unique that you say that. And then also just being in marketing and messaging that you speak to that, because I think that even goes beyond just the church itself, because right now, even just using the word masculinity, man, it's almost like using the word cigarettes or something like <laughs> because it's like they've they've right. they've I'm speaking like it's a day like it's big brother. A lot of yeah. a lot of my contemporaries that work in messaging, communications, marketing have partnered masculinity with toxic where they're almost like synonymous, which I really don't even like the labeling of that because it right. almost be like saying toxic water. You know what I'm saying? It's right. Like, I, I don't I don't identify what it's like. Why are we labeling this as toxicity? We need to label this something else. But just by speaking to masculinity itself. Right. You know, it now in certain ways, it's almost like, can you can you say masculinity? Can, right. Can we? It's like cigarettes. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like, can you can you speak to that? Like, oh know? no, and we it's have weird, to. and it's like a visceral reaction, even in you saying that. Where I'm thinking to myself, like, mm, how will this be interpreted? Why am I even thinking like that? Mm. Why am I not embracing masculinity at, for the values that it does set? And you're right. When I think of the nation, when I think of you know the fruit of Islam and those and those brothers, you know. Um, I'm definitely thinking like, okay, that's some strength. That's yeah. that's representation. A lot of, you know, even when we think of uh, the Black Power Movement and the Black Panthers, you know, right. as much as as much as a lot of my uh, my homies will speak to like knowing what Huey was writing and all that stuff, the the images of black men in in black and yeah. black leather jackets. You're not gonna forget it. Black turtlenecks and holding a shotgun. It's like in a that's black right. beret. It's like, oh yeah, I'm with that. That's right. I'm with that. It's like something in strength. Whereas you're right. When I look at a lot of the other stuff, when I think of the imagery of even driving by a church on Sunday, I'm thinking Hats. a lot of floral patterns. All day. I, I'm, I'm thinking like, damn, is this even really welcoming in, in, in these doors? Right. And you feel foreign in the space. Hmm. And as long as a man feels foreign in a space, he will remain withdrawn. Hmm. 
That's why when we fraternize, whether it's in a sports arena, in a club, um, whatever the environment, we're going somewhere where we feel welcomed, where we feel embraced. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the church I attend, there's a lot of masculine brothers, Hmm. which creates another dynamic. Uh, Mm -hmm. When you have male presence, it opens up. I can even see how it affects the younger men Mm. where... Even when it doesn't look like they paying attention, they paying attention. It may take them a little longer to come around to expressing what they're perceiving or to process it, but they're around it. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Uh, Kunjufu, he makes a quote to say, at 13, a young boy is so impressioned by the male influences in his life that he spends the rest of his life trying to become what he has seen. That's deep. What image are we giving? What image are we projecting? What are we causing to be that expression? And if it's only femininity, what are we going to get? Mm. They're either going to leave or they're going to take on that as the expression. And so it's very important to give the gift of presence and to remain active. That transitions to the next abdication of presence, Mm -hmm. which was in the communal expression when the church removes itself from giving to the community and having some kind of a solution to offer the community it also loses loses relevance and i think that in the black power movement in civil rights it was very clear our rights were under attack our babies were under attack our women our men were being hosed down dogs bullets we need to come together when that pressure is removed what is our need to come together? And, and this is interesting that you speak to that because I got I got pastor homies. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and and I would challenge them on a lot of stuff. You know, anybody know me? I'm I'm down to debate a lot of stuff. Let's push it. Um. And 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 some of them have opened the lens from almost like the the buy-in capacity too. So like, it's like. Is a church, because I've definitely felt that, and that is an argument. The church don't do nothing for the community. But it's like, okay, is a church supposed to be, how responsible is the church to be to the flock versus the community outside the the doors of the church? Hmm. And that's a very tough question to answer as I'm thinking from the leadership position, especially looking at, you know, I've seen some of the books of of what's happening and, and, and the resources, this ain't. You know what I'm saying? This ain't the 1950s where, you know, it's a pool of money that that C.O. Franklin is gathering to send, you know, you know, sixty thousand dollars down to Alabama because they doing a bus boycott. Churches ain't getting down like that. Even some of the mega churches that you think is like, oh, they just over there making a lot of money. It's not people ain't tithing. (laughs) No, not like (laughs) like 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 before, because people ain't working (laughs) like they did. before. That's right. So so with this creates uh you know the option of like okay you know the brothers across the street need a basketball room sister jones needs some money for uh some other cancer procedures that's a tough question to answer you want to be present in both right and then if you show up and just say look we're going to be praying for you on either one of those ends, people may kind of feel like we getting slighted. You know right, what I'm saying? Right. Pastor got a, you know, pastor got a Cadillac, quote unquote. Right. And then I've even had that discussion too. It's like, you know, I would, I, you know, I don't mind driving a a 15 year old Toyota, but the thing is it has an impact on how people perceive, perceive pastor. Right. And people want that pride. You know, people right. want to feel all of that. It, these are, these are a lot of, discussions that i've had where it's like i don't gotta really have, have an answer for you i don't i don't know what the the, the it, a, a yes or no you know right to some of these things but i'm just you know presenting that as you know as you say you, you know putting a whole prism like you know add more layers for people to answer these questions you know i did a lot of time away from detroit mm-hmm. where in my absence not living here you know there was i mean i'll be just honest i felt like I had abdicated my role to some degree Mm. because I love Detroit. I rep Detroit everywhere I go. Mm -hmm. Uh, But those 13 years living other places, I felt a gap in what I was professing and what I was actually doing. Mm -hmm. 
you know, I can come back and speak and I can come back and do some motivation, give back events. You know, I'm here for my family a lot. You know, I'm I'm present, but I'm not rooted in the community, in the community. And so when I got back, it was very important to me that I laid down roots so that my presence could not be um, easily removed, that there was something of permanence, mm. that what I was pushing as an agenda, pushing as important to me, that it had some kind of a tangible proof to say it's on the ground. I like I already like where you went with that because you 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 went beyond even answering the question to the the personal actions you took. So now I guess I would ask, like, so for a lot of, you know, the community and, and the churches are a reflection because a lot of a lot of like churches in my neighborhood, you know, the members aren't necessarily the people in the community. Most of them, the right. churches that are thriving are not rooted here. So right. what becomes the relationship with these families that maybe, you know, 20, you know, maybe maybe even 10 years ago lived here, no longer live here, still still, um, you know, still patronize their faith and, and right. express that here. What's the relationship between that faith work and the people in the community? Right. Right now. Like, how do you build? I like what you said. Like, how do you even build that? The, the, the put some roots, put some seeds in the ground where a relationship can exist. I feel like your question is the answer hmm. is relationship. If you don't have relationships, you do not have the cross pollinization, the connection, uh, the bridge to actually make it happen. Hmm. And so I think now what we the stage that we are at as I can only speak for what I'm a part of the Christian church. You know, we have all of our sects, our denominations and our factions within that. What are we leaving to the next generation? In every generation, you've got Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. You have the oldest fathers. You have the ones in the middle and then you have the rising generation. We have to make sure that there is some type of a connection and a flow of resources spiritually, socially and financially. If we're going to make it so we can't uh, have success up here and just leave it here. It has to funnel and you have to make sacrifices. There's no way around that. Mm. So, you know, I could preach every Sunday, but if I'm the only one preaching and I don't give the younger man an opportunity to release his gift, he ain't going he ain't going to preach to my generation. He got to preach his own people out. Now, he may get some of my people when I die and I go on, but. It's a ministry that's in him that's going to do something totally different than mine did. And so we miss transitions. We miss evolutions. And we don't respect time. If you respect time, you won't waste it. And you'll realize how important every moment is. You know, there's a time for everything. Everything under the sun, there is a time. I love cars. Mm -hmm. I love cars. And um, I have not... Um, been wasteful in my life. Um, I would love to buy a brand new car. I make plans almost every year to do it. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I always find something more important That's deep. to put my money on. That's and deep. so I've been driving the same Honda Accord for the last 11, 12 years. Mm. And I, the mile count on it scares me. Hilarious. But I would rather put something towards the future mm. than put it on my back. That's deep. Um, that's deep that you that you open it up like that, which I mean, man, we're, we're, we're already getting to a close. So I got to bring you back. But even your works outside of that, dealing with communications, marketing, connections, <clears throat> building with relationships um, in this world of social media. <clears throat> and, and let's just go there. Um, how do you feel the relationships wow. are connecting now? Because I think that's one of the biggest um, you know, changes in society yeah. across the world uh, that that now we have a generation of young people that are living in multiple realities, you know, and, and possibly different reality. You know, maybe they're a different person on Instagram than they are on TikTok. You know Facts. what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, and when I say young people, old people, too, like it's no telling what impacts. This will have on society as time goes until we experience it. Absolutely. 
So being that you 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 your your education and your works are are, are connected in this communication, but that is just a tool to build upon the relationship at the at the root of it. Yes. Um, what's your take? What 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 are you? Where do you think things are now? And how do we usefully uh, engage these tools? And even engage with young people as I, I'm hearing like new, you know, yeah. they're saying like it may be like some laws on the books to say like, you know, maybe you need to be a certain age before you get on social media or different things like that. I, I don't yeah. know even how I feel about that. I was going to say good luck monitoring that. That's what I was thinking. But um, what's your take on, on that in reference to as we bring this in to society? now? Man, I am in no ways an expert on social media. And I put that disclaimer out there uh, specifically so I don't get uh, blasted by my sister who has a social media company. Okay. Um, I refer to her on all things social. social. Okay. But I think the beauty of it, to the pure, all things are pure. Mm -hmm. So how you utilize a tool is based upon what's in your heart. But I think the opportunity that we have in connection is the fact that beyond miles, bounds, travel, I can get to you in a moment, through a DM, through a post, through a comment, through a like, and I can multiply my message exponentially in a short space of time. Um, we were talking earlier about richness and quality. You know, I have made some very rich connections via social media, sometimes in the majority of the times unintentionally. Hmm. And those opportunities have either connected resource opportunity for sharing platform or voice, um, even my awareness yeah. of what you were doing. Thank you. You know, it comes through the platform, mm -hmm. and I think that those are opportunities now that we can use to leverage, and we are using to leverage um, in an amazing way. I'm a huge fan of Orlando Bailey mm -hmm. That's my with Bridge Detroit, mm -hmm. and we're actually going to be bringing him on the platform next week to just celebrate uh, the history that he's making in the city. Cool. But having a creative mind behind content and using it to proliferate a message that is going to empower the culture in a real way is major. You know, if you're perceptive, you can see behind when somebody's trying to manipulate an opportunity because they won't money, they want power, they want attention, they want likes, they want fame, whatever they want. Everybody has an angle and everybody wants something. But I think what we can't get away from is that in this multiplicity of opportunities in digital engagement, that we don't lose commitment to the baseline. So as a diversity champion in the PR space, I'm constantly evaluating for our firm, for our clients, what is the why? Why are we speaking out during Black History Month? Is it because we actually believe this and we actually put some value there? Or is it because we don't want to get called out for not posting something? Mm. We don't want to get called out for looking like we're not legitimately an ally. Is the why clear? Because mm. if, the, if the why is clear, that which follows to the pure, all things are pure, is going to be good. But if you don't know what you're doing, <laughs> you don't know why you're doing it, you're going to run into problems because at some point the authenticity of what you present is going to be called on the carpet. And so you better make sure that what you're presenting is for real. Otherwise, presenting it will cost more than doing nothing. Wow, that's deep. Man, oh, man, I couldn't even say that better. It's like, I need you to. I need you <laughs> man, to, get uh, out of here. Other, other business meeting what? or something like that. Whatever, hey. man. Hey. He's silly, what that bro. guy just said? He's silly, bro. I'm with it. I'm with it. <laughs> so now we're at the end. Like I said, I'm definitely bringing you back. And then I want to see like uh, how we can collaborate on something this Bro, summer. I'm doing works do and we can do some stuff. Let's do it. Um, so first things first. Yes, Classic sir. Detroit is different questions. Mm. Very first car. Year, make, and model. Year, you got it. Ooh, first car. Uh, that would have been a Jeep Grand Cherokee. Okay. That would have been a 1998. Uh, it was red. It was smooth. I love that. Love that Jeep. What else was the other question to it? Uh, year, make, model, year you got it. Man, that would have been in 05. Okay, okay. So it has some lived experience. Man, I totaled that boy. Mm. <laughs> I oh, loved it. Safe? I was crushed, man. I, we, we were safe. 
Okay. Um, hit a patch of ice on six ninety six and was it like slammed a, into the median wall? Was it um like a really bad day or was it like some of that black ice that you didn't even expect? It was black ice. I was coming from school, had my sister and uh, one of her best friends wow. in the back seat, and I never forget it. We had Kiera Shear playing. I was doing probably about sixty eight. wasn't wasn't even speeding. Was just enjoying the ride. A car swung from the far lane over four lanes. Whoa. And I was trying to get out of the way of them hitting me, I call, so I caught out of California, bruh. Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't anybody that be in LA, you know, uh, if you just get at an Uber in LA, you bro, just gotta be like, they wild. Please you know, let me make it. It's like they'll go from like that seven lane highway, Man. like hey, 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 literally, hey, hey, yeah. I know you didn't see. I, I, <laughs> you couldn't see all the way to this lane, man. You know, but. Yeah, like, bro. Mm. Somebody saw him, got a license plate. So, you know, insurance and stuff, we were good. Okay. But, uh, man, told him I whip, man. Wow. And I was, I was crushed after that. Oh, man. After oh, that, man. though, I got my prelude. So okay. I enjoyed my, my Honda prelude for a minute. Where's the first place you drove when you got it? Man, the first place I drove when I got my car? The prelude or the, the Jeep? We going? The Jeep. Man, probably the Dairy Queen. Okay. Hey, there we go. <laughs> There we go. It, it must have been the summertime. It's been a minute, but it's probably Dairy Queen. All right. Um, you're the DJ at the end of the fireworks. Mm. Woodward and Jefferson. You get to play three songs. What songs are you playing? Ooh, end of the fireworks. What are we playing? Um, Return of the Mac. Okay. All right. Mark Morrison, you're going to get definitely some Detroit. Uh, you're going to get that Detroit bounce going with that one. Yeah, we got to get a little Detroit bounce. Um, I'm classic, man. I am classic. Uh, I want Mesa. I want her playing. Mm. Um, I think she's performing here soon. Too. Bro. Okay. Queen. I love Mesa, bro. Okay. And um, I'm trying to think. She had that one song. It's either like JFA is only abbreviations, mm. but it's instrumental mostly. So with you, some acoustic so voice a, on top. That's the advantage of being by Shane Park, too. It's like you can just uh, open up the window and get, bro, some, get some music in I there. lived down in River for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Man, that was dope, man. Until it wasn't. Three in the morning, they still going. You like, I want to go to bed. But, Hilarious. <laughs> um, I got one more on the track. Mm-hmm. Who else we going to play, man? Probably Anita Baker, man. Some Something light, something easy. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Let 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 the classics, let them, let them dance a little bit. Okay. No one in the world. We, we'll go with that. We'll go with that. Okay, and last question: You you can rename what word after one Detroiter. Who would it be and why? That's heavy. Rename it. Mm -hmm. Mm. I'm gonna say Mary McLeod Bethune. Mm, Interesting. Even though she was not only a Detroiter, she had that property not too far from Lewis Business College, where they made her move her front door to the side door because blacks were not allowed to walk on Ferry Street. Mm. I would want to give her the dignity of having a whole street. That's deep. I like that. I didn't even know that story. That's some that's some game, game, game right there you give it. That's dope. Nah. That's dope. Thank you so much, Mr. Sullivan. Man, only um, love, bro. Thank you for the love. opportunity. Thank you so much. Yes, sir. Peace. Detroit is Different is where you get information, artistry, history, music, and even comedy. Detroit is Different, a home for the culture of Detroit. Visit online at DetroitIsDifferent.com today.